Now, Steve Punt continues his assignment as Radio 4's very own gumshoe, and tonight some rather poisonous goings-on in the home counties. It's another case for Punt P.I. This is Punt's private eye. I'm not here right now. Please leave a message. Punt, it's Tracy. Got a case for you. A cold case, in fact. A very curious one, this. A real whodunit. Looks like it could be murder. Unsolved. Dates back to the 1930s. Get yourself down to Surrey. Your contact there goes by the name of Clark. Don't leave a single stone unturned on this one, punt. Don't assume anything. It's about time this one was cleared up. The report on my desk within the week. An unsolved murder was new ground for me. And from the 1930s, the golden age of detectives. Real Agatha Christie stuff. But this was a real case with real people. And as I boarded the train down to Surrey, I felt rather nervous. I'd investigated phantom steam engines, cursed paintings and towns that didn't exist. But this was an altogether more serious business. And with no dapper Belgian brain box or sharp-eyed old ladies to help me, I was on my own. How to solve a murder, the detective's hand. Best to do it by the book. So as I settled into my seat on the train, I consulted a reference manual. There are three key things when trying to establish the perpetrator of a crime of murder. Means, motive, opportunity. Means, motive, opportunity. Means, motive, opportunity. Means, motive, opportunity. This detective mantra would echo through my head as the investigation unfolded. The first thing was to get the facts of the case. And for this, I was heading to Farnborough. Yes, this is Farnborough, uh, where I've come to meet Ken Clark. No, not that one, different one. Now, I, I don't have a description. But then, a man stepped forward and announced himself. He invited me to get into his car. En route, Ken told me that he was treasurer of the Tony Hancock Appreciation Society. Had he got the wrong show? Or had I got the wrong man? He assured me, no, he's also a local historian. We arrived at Ken's house, a comfortable semi on the outskirts of Camberley, where his wife was waiting with a crucial question. Settled into Ken's living room with a cup of instant, he started to recount a mystery that, 80 years on, remains baffling. It happened in Deepcut, a small village, mainly consisting of army personnel. The main characters are Lieutenant Hubert George Chevis, who is in the Royal Artillery, and his wife, Frances Howard. Um, they'd only been married six months. And it was in their married quarters that dinner was being prepared on the night in question, Saturday, June the 20th, 1931. And they intended to go to the military tattoo, which in those days was held in Rushmore Arena. And the meal was prepared by their cook, who was an Ellen Yeomans. And for the first course, they had fish that served about half past seven. Mm -hmm. And to follow that, they would have partridge, potatoes, peas and bread sauce. And it was served by their batman, Nicholas Bolger. Bought it in and they had the first course. And then they bought the partridge in, which was put on a sideboard in the dining room. 
Mrs. Chevis then carved the meat, as was the normal, because apparently her husband wasn't very good at carving. So she carved the meat and placed it on a plate. She had some as well. They sat down and he suddenly exclaimed that it was awful. Not long after that, about a quarter past eight, she, Mrs. Chevis, that is, called Bolger back in because her husband was, was ill and he wasn't well at all, he was cold and his face was almost black. Obviously there was something wrong with him. This was clearly no ordinary food poisoning. It was so bad that they actually called the doctor. Right. And he attended and not long after he arrived, Mrs Chevis then became ill. And then it got even more serious, about quarter to ten, uh, Dr Cuthbert Attenborough attended and between them they decided it was so serious in fact that he should be removed to the local Frimley Cottage Hospital. They performed artificial respiration on him all night till about ten past nine the next morning when he was pronounced dead. And here I've actually got the death certificate of Hubert George Chevis. Uh, and the official verdict seemed to suggest that some sort of deadly game was afoot. Cause of death? Asphyxia. Asphyxia following strychnine poisoning caused by eating partridge. But it's interesting the fact that they, they state that the strychnine poisoning was in the partridge. Death by partridge. And using strychnine, the same poison Agatha Christie had used for the plot of her first novel. But this was no work of fiction, and it had no neat solution. Has anybody ever got to the bottom of, of definitively what happened in this case? Uh, no, no, they haven't. So nobody was ever arrested for this? No, no one's ever been charged? No, no, nobody at all. But Ken wasn't finished just yet. There was a further twist to this bizarre tale. An actual telegram was sent to Sir William Chevis, who was Lieutenant Chevis's father, um, from Dublin, and actually arrived while Sir William was attending his son's funeral. And it said, Hooray, hooray, hooray. And it had the name of J. Hartigan Hibernian. Um, there was a hotel, apparently, of that name in Dublin, um, but the Mr Hartigan, or Miss, maybe, um, could not be traced at all. While the victim was being buried, a telegram reading, Hooray, 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 was sent to his father. And on the 4th of August, Sir William Chevis received a postcard, and which I've got a copy of here, and it says, Written, it is a mystery they will never solve. And it's signed, J Hartigan, and underneath is, the, is written the word, Hooray. It is a mystery they will never solve. That sounded like a challenge, if ever there was one. The first priority for any detective is to visit the crime scene. So Ken and I jumped in the car. Going into not far from Ain Road, where he lived. These are all army quarters. Oh, there's um, a high fence to the right. We drove into Deep Cut to see the bungalow where foul play had unfolded. They look post-war, these, don't they? Yeah. But it appeared I had arrived slightly too late. The scene of the crime had long gone. It was roughly where we are now, opposite Stafford Lodge, which was listed as being here in 1931. The houses are still military quarters, and the secluded cul-de-sac layout is unchanged. Yes, I mean, we're, we're surrounded by woodland here, aren't we? It's quite, uh, it's, it's very green and, and rather quiet. It's quite hard to imagine, actually, in, in this sort of uh, quiet, tree-lined road, such a um, strange and unpleasant thing happening. Yes, it must have been, uh, you know, can you imagine, it must have been a terrible shock for everybody. Doctors attending and an ambulance coming to take them to the hospital and then finding out he died of strychnine poisoning. It must have come as a terrible shock to them. It shattered the peace of this 
quiet neighbourhood. I do slightly wonder, looking at this, what sort of life it would have been for a wife to live in such a quiet place and presumably for long periods be left on her own. With no crime scene, there were no obvious leads, but I wondered if case history might help. I made contact with Dr Catherine Watson of Oxford Brookes University, who studied the files on poisoning cases. What should I be on the lookout for? Most poisoners in the past did it because they were absolutely desperate and the means was so obviously easily before them. Poison was dirt cheap, easy to get, and you could often hope to get away with it. Was anyone in the Chevis household absolutely desperate? And did they have ready access to poisons? This would give a motive and means. What other clues should I be looking for? You have to have a certain kind of cold-hearted mindset because with poisoning you've got to get very close to your victim and what's more, you're not doing it uh, at the spur of the moment as with perhaps a knifing or a beating. You're thinking about it, you're calculating what you're going to do, which means generally you have to be very cold and, and withdrawn. You don't feel any emotion for your victim. It's not true that most or all poisoners are female. In fact, it's about a 50-50 split between men and women. But one does understand that you might find that proportionally out of all murderers, more poisoners are female than male. So if I, uh, if I wanted to look into this case, um, mm -hmm. where do you think I should be looking next? Uh, definitely I'd suggest that you start with whatever written records the coroner left about this case. Every coroner should leave some kind of written record of the inquests that he holds. The question being how detailed are they and do they still survive at this point in time? I had my first lead, the coroner's inquest. I got onto Surrey History Centre to see if they still had the paperwork on the case and whether I would be allowed to see it. Um, yes, is, uh, is Matthew Piggott? My contact was Matthew Piggott. Hello, Steve. Matthew took me through a labyrinth of corridors and confirmed that they did indeed have what I was looking for. This is the file of uh, Lieutenant Chevis and these are the inquest papers uh, following his case. Right. Then Matthew revealed something unexpected and rather exciting. It's uh, not been looked at before, so uh, it looks like this is the first time the file has been looked at. So I'm the first person to, to see this file uh, since it was stored? As far as we can tell, it's not been looked at before, yes. Right. And so there was never a trial, so this is actually the only yes. first-hand testimony we've got, isn't Indeed it, it is, yes. So, it's a, it's a formidable pile of paper. Can I just yes. start reading through it? Yes, indeed. Right. Yes. Thank you. Coroner's report concerning death in um, fearsome-looking Gothic script. I had my work cut out here. It was a thick file. Uh, uh, that's interesting. But bearing in mind means, motive and opportunity, I started combing through it. Shortly after Mr Chevis was violently ill and Dr Bindloss of Farnborough was summoned. There's a lot of documents here. He was with deceased for about an hour when Mrs Chevis was also taken ill. There are a lot of documents. Mr Chevis became worse and at 12 midnight breathing ceased. More intriguing. All the doctors concerned are of the opinion that deceased died from strychnine poisoning. The papers showed that the partridges had been traced to a local butcher and that they had come from Manchuria. It was suggested they could have eaten poisoned bait used by hunters in that part of the world but all the others in the batch had been fine. I, too, had started with a fish course, consisting of a large red herring, but one which ruled out accidental death. This had to be murder. 
Then, my first discovery. Let's have a look at this. Mr. Cheevis said, remove this bird. It's the most awful thing I have ever tasted and have it destroyed. The coroner has then noted principal evidence thus destroyed on order of victim. So the police had lacked exhibit A, the poisoned Manchurian partridge, which must have significantly hindered the investigation. Um, then we've got the statement from the Batman, Nicholas Bulger. Since I have been with them, Mr and Mrs Chivis appeared to live a very happy life. This is one of Chivis's colleagues. Uh, just says he was a most popular officer and to the best of my belief he had no enemies. As far as I know, he had no troubles of any kind. Now I've got the cook, Ellen Yeomans. I have never seen any poison in the house since I've been employed there. So, no troubles of any kind and no poison in the house. Motive and means were proving hard to establish, although the facts of the case were becoming ever clearer. Oh, now here's the wife's... Uh... From the file, I learned that she was 29, he had been 28, and that the couple had only been married six months, by all accounts happily. Before that, Francis Chevis had been married to an army vet, a Major Jackson. They had two children, but it seems he was something of a philanderer and they were divorced. I then came across something which seemed significant. I think my husband had two mouthfuls from his bird. He then complained that it tasted horrible. He asked me if I would taste a piece to see if it was him or his bird. He passed a piece onto my plate. I ate it by itself. I tasted it and found it filthy. So she did eat a piece of his partridge. So it looked as if probably only one of the pair of partridges had been poisoned. And quite a lot of poison had apparently been used. Hmm. Leaving aside motive for a while, I decided to find out more about the means. We are now approaching our final destination. I needed an expert witness, someone who knew about strychnine and its deadly effects. I made my way into the Chilterns, where I called in on John Timbrell, professor of toxicology and author of The Poison Paradox. He quickly confirmed that this was a very unusual case indeed. Between 1750 and 1910, I think, there were 41 cases of, of poisoning um, with strychnine, whereas about 250 with arsenic. And, and how many of the others are unsolved? I don't think any of them are, actually. So that's very strange. So that, that, that means that this case somehow slipped through the net <laughs> as, as, a, as a, a very rare incident, actually. It is. So what more could he tell me about this substance, which on that fateful night had ended up on Lieutenant Chevis's dinner plate? It's a natural product. It comes from um, an Indian plant, obviously very potent. People who've been poisoned are very hypersensitive and so they, they go into, into spasms and convulsions. Their muscles become extended and they can't breathe. And so it's quite gruesome. Yes. Um, and and their, their faces also sort of form a, a, take on a, a, a grin, which they can't control, so their muscles all contract. Yes. So it's pretty, pretty horrific to watch, I would imagine. This main use and where people most likely would have acquired it would be as, as a rat poison. Right. And, um, and by the 1930s, which is this case that I'm looking at, was it still reasonably available? It would be certainly been available in 1930, yes. It was necessary when you bought it from a chemist or druggist that you had to sign the poison register. And obviously that would be a bit of a problem if you were trying to poison someone. 
But there must have been other routes to, to, to get hold of it, I think. Maybe through corrupt uh, doctors or vets. That got me thinking. I remembered from the file that Mrs Chevis's first husband, Major Jackson, was a vet. Did I have my first suspect? Means, motive, opportunity. I also remembered a letter in the coroner's file that was sent to the police by Francis Chevis. Um, uh, blah, 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 blah. Are, are you satisfied about Major Jackson? I know him well and watched him in court yesterday. Are you sure his alibi is all right? Frances Chevis seems to have entertained doubts herself about her first husband. Could Jackson have done it? I needed to run this theory past an expert. I passed my case file to Trevor Marriott, a former detective with Bedfordshire Police. To be able to have put the strychnine into the partridge, um, he himself would have obviously had to have been present in and around the house, and certainly there's no evidence from anybody to suggest that he was seen in the area or had been in the area. He gave an alibi and, and the police checked that out. They were not, not able to break that alibi. If it was him, what was the motive behind um, uh, getting rid of um, her current husband? Yes, I don't think there was any f uh, f financial gain in it for No, and, and it appears that there was no um, animosity between them. There was no bad blood. Um, not according to, to anything that I've read, anyway. It made sense. Jackson may have had the means, but he didn't have the opportunity. He had a cast-iron alibi. So that just left the Batman, the cook and Mrs Chevis. They all had the opportunity, but neither the Batman or the cook seemed to have any motive, and Mrs Chevis had tasted some of the poison bird and showed symptoms herself. Surely no-one would voluntarily eat strychnine well, that's right. That's that's right. I think clearly you can sort of look at her and say, well, would she have been foolish enough to do that? I think that probably uh, tends to show that um, she perhaps wasn't in any way involved because if that had been the case, she would have made some excuse and not taken any of that meat from that, that specific bird. But then I recalled something Professor John Timbrell had said to me. He didn't think the bird itself was poisoned. I personally think that, that even with a very small amount necessary of the, of the solid, that, that would be kind of difficult because you'd have to really put it underneath the skin. And then you wouldn't necessarily, um, because that would only be localised, you wouldn't necessarily, the, person, the, vic the intended victim wouldn't necessarily eat that bit. Yes. I mean, personally, having read the, um, the case, I think the most likely, um, the most obvious way to do it would have been to dissolve it in the gravy. Ah, the gravy. Because the, the wife apparently um, served the, the partridge from the sideboard. And, and as you can see, it's only a tiny amount of, of um, strychnine would have been um, the dose necessary just to put in the, the gravy and stir it round, and that would have been enough. So I, so I think it would have, the, the, the gravy would be the obvious place to put it. So if Mrs Chevis had poisoned the gravy, she could have avoided eating meat which had gravy on it. And this led me to my next question. Do you think it would be possible to fake the symptoms of strychnine poisoning sufficiently to fool three different doctors? Um, possibly, um, because she'd already... If you were thinking of the wife, she would have um, seen the effect on him, certainly, so she'd have known what sort of effect to, to, to simulate. Now we were getting somewhere. I needed another view, and where Poirot and Miss Marple relied on intuition, modern detectives can call in a forensic psychologist. 
Foremost among them is Professor David Cantor, who I spoke to via another 21st century advance, an internet phone link, something never available in St Mary Mead. I asked whether Mrs Chevis herself appeared to be the main suspect. Well, of course, she's the main sort of suspect in, in a simple, fictional sort of way, in the way it would be in a novel, because it's poison and it's this sort of premeditated action. And so often, uh, violence occurs between people who already have an existing relationship. Um, but there's no clear reason why she would have done it or what the processes were that gave rise to her wanting to do it. We were back again to the question of motive. Was it a real-life Christie plot involving an insurance policy or a will? And what of that sinister telegram? Hooray, hooray, hooray. Who would have raised three cheers that Lieutenant Chevis was dead? Did Professor Cantor think that was significant? When you have a case that has a tremendous amount of press coverage, there's a, a great deal of interest generated in all sorts of odd people, in all sorts of situations. And as far as we can tell in all of these cases, these letters and tape recordings had nothing to do with the actual villain. Um, they were just ways of teasing the police, really. Although this telegram wasn't sent to the police, it was sent to the family. It was actually opened by Chevis's mother, who was so shocked she told a doorstepping reporter about it and potentially vital evidence was splashed on the front page prompting a complaint from the coroner that the press may have prejudiced any eventual trial, proof that some things change less than others. And none of this still gave any motive. But then I received a call. It turned out that the oldest grandson of Francis Chevis had heard about my investigation and wanted to speak to me. This was my best lead yet. OK, so now looking for York Road. I hot-footed it to Maidenhead to question Charles Jackson. Hello. Hi. Grandson of Francis via her first marriage to Major Jackson. The death of Francis' second husband, Hubert Chevis, was always shrouded in mystery. It was a big family secret, which was incredibly well kept. So what light could he shed on his grandmother? It was very interesting. When she died, there was a cupboard found full of medicines to ensure that she had good bowel movement because as a result of the murder she was always concerned about washing everything through her. Aside from the, the need to not let anything lie for too long in her stomach, um, what do you remember about your grandmother? What sort of My woman was she? She was a very slim, very beautiful. Um, she had tremendous presence. She could quieten you down with a glance she had a fabulous smile. She was witty, sharp. If she loved you, she loved you, you know, without question. But God help you if she didn't like you. The fact that I speak the way I do is down entirely to her in that she paid for me to go to, you know, public school. Uh, she was very generous to all her children. Was she very sort of sociable type? Incredibly sociable. She could walk into a room and all eyes would turn towards her. She could stand there erect. I never, ever saw her bent over. She was always absolutely ramrod straight. She was very slim and, and not that tall. But uh, some people, you know, like that, have huge presence and can completely dominate a room and certainly the people they're talking to. Yes. She was... Um, 
I understand, you know, through the 20s and 30s, quite a social figure around London. Do you know anything about the, the relationship between your grandmother and Hubert Chavez? My mother did have a conversation with her back in the 50s where she said that he was her one true love. What do you know, if anything, about her upbringing? What, what, what was her background? Oh, she had a very sad upbringing. She was an only child, very wealthy parents. Her father died two months after she was born. And you mentioned that she paid for your schooling. What, what was her sort of financial situation? Very good. She was very wealthy. Did, what, did she inherit money? Or? She inherited it. She inherited, yes. Is there any kind of ballpark that you can put us in here? Put it this way, you didn't have to work right. if you had that sort of money. Her father died when she was very, very young. Yes. So when did she come into this money? 21. When she was 21? Yeah. This was very significant. Frances Chevis was 29 when Hubert Chevis died, meaning she'd inherited her fortune eight years before. She owned a Knightsbridge flat, she had a chauffeur and was financially independent. She could easily have obtained a divorce. She'd been through one already. Although if he had wanted to divorce her, of course, the implications would be interesting. All the evidence, though, is that they seemed happy. So it was looking more and more as if Frances Chevis had no motive whatsoever for murdering her husband, especially using a method that had always in the past led to a conviction. But Charles Jackson has his own idea, suggesting an entirely different motive for the murder of Hubert Chevis. He was born in India and there was a fair amount going on with Indian independence and a fair amount of what we would refer to nowadays as terrorist activity. Um, so it is, and his father, I believe, had been a judge in India. So it might have been somebody who had a grudge against his father. This was very interesting, a connection with the days of the Raj. My toxicology expert had told me that strychnine came from an Indian plant, and according to the coroner's file, Mrs Chevis asked permission from the police to go out to India soon after the unexplained death of her husband. She went on to marry three more times and died in Monaco in 1973. Did she know or suspect more than she told the police? Did she take those secrets with her to the grave? What of the mysterious telegram sender, Jay Hartigan? Who confidently predicted that it was a mystery that would never be solved? He or she didn't seem to exist. But suppose it wasn't a person at all. There was one final twist. Playing with the name Jay Hartigan, I realised that the letters form an anagram. Raj hating. But maybe I've just read one too many detective thrillers. Reluctantly, and with the ghost of Miss Marple glancing up from her knitting in dismay, it was time to close the file on the case of the poisoned partridge. Pumped P.I. was produced by Lawrence Grizel. Tracy was played by Jared McDermott.